0: All right, so we are in a new book in this travel through short studies of biblical theology um, um, that uh, Stephen and I are going to be teaching, and so uh, this this book is has six chapters, so it's going to be we're going to be in this one a little bit longer. Aaron kind of mentioned it a little bit last week at the end of during announcements, and um, and so. This one is called, uh, if you can read that title, Redemptive Reversals and the Ironic Overturning of Human Wisdom by G.K. Beal. This morning I'm going to briefly introduce this book and then we're going to just get started on on chapter one, which is entitled God Judges People by Their Own Sin. I'm not going to be able to get through all that chapter. Uh, It's going to take me a couple weeks, but um, we'll see how far we can get today. How's that sound? All right, there you go. Um, so with that um, introduction, well, this book, as quoting the author G.K. Bill, he said, this book is about the notion that God deals with humans in, in primarily ironic ways. Um, and as we go through this, I think that's going to be more and more clear to you how God deals with us in ironic ways. Well, there's two kinds of, uh, two primary kinds of um, irony that the author calls out, a biblical, um, from a biblical theological perspective. The first one he calls retributive irony, Um, and he defines that where God punishes people by the very means of their own sin. Oh, I'm sure you can see that. You've even experienced it yourself. And the second irony, biblical irony that he calls out, is a redemptive irony. And he defines this as the faithful, where the faithful appear to be cursed, but as they persevere in faith, they are really in the midst of being blessed. Clearly, this is something that the faithful understands. This requires faith to even see it. At its core, irony is saying one thing and meaning another. And we can see that in literal irony. We can see it played out in in our lives as well. Well, the purpose of the book, uh, Beale writes, he says, Christians need to be aware of the ironic nature of life in in order that they not become discouraged when bad things happen in our lives. Um, In fact, we're going to see that the ironic nature of Christian living is really necessary in order that faith be given the opportunity to grow. It's one of the points that he makes. It tests us in that area. A great example of irony, the irony that we can see in Scripture, can be seen um, real quickly in the Gospel of Luke, which we're going through right now, that Aaron's preaching through. Uh, in the narrative that, of that Gospel, as we're reading, um, we see multiple efforts to stand against God's plan, where the seed of the serpent trying to stand against God's plan, but those efforts only fulfill prophecy. It is God who has the power to do that. For example, that rejection of Christ by the Jews is what brings His redeeming death. That's what brings it about in the events that God determined how it would come. Later on, in the book of Acts, written by the same author, we see the persecution of the church only increases the spread of evangelism. We see that today. And even considering one of Christ's most ironic statements, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. Last. Or Paul's claim, when I am weak, then I am strong. You can see there the ironies that are rich in our lives as believers. Well, despite human wisdom, God's plan of redemption prevails every time. And praise Him for that. Man continues to be humbled in the process. So, chapter 1, that's my brief introduction to this book. Chapter 1... God judges people by their own sin. We, um, we're going to discuss different characters. Um, we're going to go through and talk about different instances throughout Scripture where man, in his own wisdom, had his plans, often wicked, selfish plans, those plans turning upon their own head. And we can see it through different things that we're going to go through. We're going to talk about Esther and what we see there in that book here in a minute. But when this happens, God is glorified. And again, we are humbled. Uh, the very way by which people attempt by way of sin to get ahead often becomes the very means by which they fail. And I think it's, it's vital that we're all hearing and understanding that and thinking about this. Um, I'm excited actually to go through some very popular stories that we are familiar with as adults, but our children, you know, getting to hear them again, what a blessing that is. You know, this principle of God turning our sin upon our own heads is that really at every level in life, Beal argues. Um, He talks about an article in, in Time Magazine where it's talking about people's use of cocaine or any drugs for that matter, but this one in particular um, as he's citing the article, um, calling it a means where there's a what he would call a some asymmetrical irony, because cocaine's effort there is to mimic a, a and show someone have a, a will and a, an emotional focus that they think they have, but they precisely do not have. They're they're deceiving themselves. They feel like they're unstoppable. And they go off and do those things under that influence that becomes their demise. So these virtues that people think they have sometimes, which are not virtues at all, ends up humbling them. The very things in which people wrongly attempt to find liberation, he says, those are the things that um, that draw us in and become a, a bondage to us. As we become affixed to those things, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its in is the way to death. That's what we see. That's the principle that we understand through Scripture. Now, as we go through these ironies, there's not a chronological order that they put through in this book, by the way. We're just hitting some main themes. Um, so we 're starting off with Esther. certainly there's ironies that happened behind before that, uh, you know, just thinking what happened in the garden and the curse that we talked about already. you know man was to be fruitful and multiply, and then that fruitfulness of the earth turns up to be cursed, and man, by the sweat of his brow and through pain and misery, has to produce so there's ironies that we're not going to cover completely here, but we're just going to call out some of the things that the author is calling out. Well, starting off here in Esther, we consider that arch enemy of the Jews, Haman. He's, we see with him there's a deadly turn of events, um, and we also see the unstoppable providence of God being worked through it. Now, Haman, just as a reminder, he was a, a pathetic sycophant. He kissed up to the king as much as he could. Uh, for glory for himself, this, this enemy of the Jews. And despite whatever talents that the man may have had, and I'm sure he had talents because you don't get to that level in that kingdom, that ancient kingdom of Persia, uh, like he did without having some skills. But despite those, uh, he was a man that greatly lacked integrity. He was a wicked man. Uh, he hated God, and he hated God's people. And he put his confidence in things that were unstable, namely himself. Well, Haman found an enemy in Mordecai, if you recall that. Uh, Mordecai was a Jew who possessed integrity. He feared God. Uh, And we see here in in that narrative, that story, a trust that's proven here to be fruitful in the end. And it's full of hope, This, this hope. That Mordecai had. Well, he was Esther's uncle, right? Uh, Who became Queen Esther. Uh, Esther was this young virgin that was was taken in. I'm not going to walk through the whole story, but these are the main characters here. But the focus that is brought out in this book is on Haman, uh, how he plotted for Mordecai to be hanged because, well, he wouldn't bow down to him when he came by in the streets. Mordecai would not pay homage to Haman. And if there's one thing that Haman could not suffer, that was a wounded pride. So the ironic turn of events here in this story is that night, if you recall, before Mordecai was to be hanged, the king himself couldn't sleep. So what did he do? He asked the servants to come read to him um, records of the affairs of the kingdom. I suppose that is an interesting read. It would certainly put me to sleep. Um, But he asked that to be read, and as that was being read, they came across the assassination attempt that was taken against the king, but how it was foiled by Mordecai. The king asked, well, what honor was bestowed upon this man for saving me, for bringing this out in the open? And he had found out no honor had been given to him. Well, at the same time as irony would have it, enters Haman into the king's court. Um, and so he came there to, um, he had his own plot. He wanted to suggest, uh, the plans to get, uh, Mordecai and the Jews destroyed. Uh, but he, he, the king instead of asks Haman, he says, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? Of course, Haman thinks he's talking about himself. Well, Haman gives him a list of ways how he could do that, to show honor to a man, um, but it wasn't for him. But the king tells Haman, he says, do so. Do those things that you've told me. Do the, so for the Mordecai the Jew. Do so for Mordecai the Jew. And so Haman was required to lead the horse around that Mordecai was sitting on, and he had to chant throughout the city square, you know, giving praise to Mordecai. You can imagine the pain that was. We read in this story how he went home and he cried to his wife and friends and, and all that stuff, but that escapes our story for this morning. However, Haman was still successful on some level. He was successful in getting the key to agree to his secret plot, the king not knowing exactly all that was entailed in this plot. Well, soon after, Queen, um, we see Queen Esther enter the scene here and Informs the queen, or the king rather, of Haman's plot, which was really to exterminate the Jews, which of course included herself and Mordecai. This infuriates the king, ordering Haman to be hanged on those gallows that he had made for Mordecai himself, and so therefore he was hanged. That is a book where you don't see um, God being mentioned. Um, and quoted, but we see that God's providence hard at work there. The, the ironic turn of events that God's in control of. This story of Mordecai's rise and then of Haman's uh, demise exemplifies a more general principle where God sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. As so Job noted, quoting Job there. Well, regarding the scheming of the wicked, we read also in Job chapter 18, it says, his strong steps are shortened and his own schemes throw him down for he is cast into a net by his own feet and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground. A trap for him in the path. So the demise of the wicked is turned upon their own heads. And we see that very clearly in that story in in Esther. So that's one thing that we see and we call out in chapter 1 of this book. The next thing that um, Beal talks about is this principle of an eye for an eye that we see in Leviticus. Uh, This this irony of judgment. Let's just read this passage real quick um, in Leviticus chapter 24. It says, If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done it, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. This was given to the the nation of Israel, this was given in Scripture, and it is a principle that good laws should be based on. Now, what does Christ say? He says, tells us to turn our cheek, and frankly, that vengeance is the Lord's, which is also we read in Deuteronomy. So how we live this out faithfully as Christians is we don't take revenge into our own hands, but God the providence of God that he uses, he turns these things upon and uses this, the same devices that we sinfully engage with often to be our punishment, an eye for an eye. The idea is that the form of man's punishment is to be patterned after the form of his crime or whatever his sin is. You know, the very act, for example, of killing another shows the pattern how the killer must himself be punished. He must be killed, put to death. Um, so it may seem to a man the right way for a man to act to kill someone, but in its way is death. Furthermore, the murderer will be punished by the means of his own sin. And that is the ironic judgment. That's what we're talking about here. It's something that we should consider and and fear God for, that he sees these things. There's some passages I want to go through here. In Psalm 5, the first part of 10, regarding this ironic judgment of God, it says, Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Let them fall by their own counsels. That passage reads in Psalm 7, verses 15 and 16. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head. And on his own skull, violence descends. Psalm 9, verses 15 and 16. The nations have sunk in the pit they've made and the net that they've hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are ensnared in the work of their own hands. And then lastly, Proverbs 26, verse 27 Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. Now, certainly we see, if we were to read some passages from Ecclesiastes, it doesn't always work out that way. Um, The righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. That often happens. But God is still watching. Their sin is just piling up against them. God is being patient, and many times, or He is just allowing, quite frankly, those those judgments to be piling up on that person, all for His glory. But these are the principles that we see in Scripture; those same principles that we should live by and, and fear God for. Another irony that we see um, is. You reap what you sow. Have your Bibles turned to Second Samuel chapter 12. It's a bit of a longer passage, so we can just read it from the Bible here, straight out of it. Second Samuel, Samuel chapter 12, verses 9 through 12. Now... What's going on here? This is when Nathan is rebuking David after he had sinned with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Very ironically, this neighbor that the Lord will be giving his wives over to is going to be a little bit closer than a neighbor, as we're going to read about here in a minute. Well, David was being punished by the, very mean, by the means of the, the very sins that he had committed. David's murder of Uriah by the sword was punished by his sons, Amnon, and Absalom, both being likewise murdered, killed. And just as David committed adultery with another's wife, so his wives became abused in even a greater way, a more spectacular way. Well, David should not have been surprised by the severity of this really ironic penalty. He would have remembered um, the fate of another king during his own youth. Um, it was perhaps it was this pronouncement by Nathan and coming to him that made him think perhaps of that sentence that was passed on Agag. You remember him, king of the Amalekites, where Saul was told to destroy him completely, not take any plunder or anything. Yet he he spared the king at the moment. Well, Samuel enters the scene and he says, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. Now, Samuel was pronouncing judgment over Agag before he chopped him into pieces because Agag was a wicked man who had destroyed families. The ironic judgment of Saul would have been evident as well before his own suicide. Because Samuel tells Saul, he says, because you have rejected the word of Lord, God has also rejected you from being king. Probably at that time, Saul was going, yeah, right. I just defeated another army. Who knows what was going through his mind before he took his own life. But nevertheless, David's own life and his story, his, he is, his life is spared. We know this. And that's part of God's redemptive plan as we see um, Christ in that, in that line of that, that godly seed. But God still used this as a, a means in his sin to, to punish him. You know, David's case for us is very instructive since it shows that even believers reap what they sow. We should be fearful of that, kids. And and, and understand, we reap what we sow. Pray for God's mercy. He is a merciful God. You know, the punishment that David received wouldn't have an eternal dimension with it. He was a man saved by grace, just as so many of us are. But the judgment he had to suffer, nonetheless, was very real. Arthur Pink, A.W. Pink, had this to say. He says, though God forgives his people their sins, yet he frequently gives them plain proof of his holy abhorrence of the same and causes them to taste something of the bitter fruits which they bring forth. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. Even when he's your father. In the sense of the punishment that we deserve. I would much rather learn from David's example. Wouldn't you? (laughs) Well, Christians should well consider their actions and the possible consequences. That's the, the point that Beale's making here. For example... And one that I have seen more times than I ever care to see is when young people want to get married. And sometimes those primary qualities are more of a, an, a, 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 an attractive appearance or some personality that that person has. It's not their spiritual life. Those spiritual motivations and commitment to the Lord are often overlooked. Or we deceive ourselves, just telling ourselves there's something there that's not. We don't take the counsel of other people, as another example. But I see it so many times. And when a Christian marries a non-Christian, there are going to be troubles. There just will be. The, believer, the unbeliever rather, cannot understand that zeal for God that, that Christian has. And so, as a result, the unbelieving spouse is going to be antagonistic to things like family demo- devotions, uh, to things like mealtime prayer, you know, going to church. Now, this reaction is inevitable because that non-Christian's Focus is on the physical realm. There is no spiritual aspect that's alive. It makes no sense. You know, the point is that when Christians emphasize external realities when choosing a spouse, this choice can be the very thing that curses them later. And it's a sad thing to see. You reap what you sow. All right, this next section he calls entitled, Traitors Betray Themselves. They think they're going to betray someone, but they end up themselves being betrayed. It's likely that the ironic patterns of life that we saw with David were further impressed upon his mind because of the events that did happen later on in his reign. You know, it was tragically after David had just forgiven Absalom, his son, for murdering Amnon. Now, Amnon was no good. He abused his his half-sister, and Absalom killed him for it. But David forgave Absalom. But Absalom repaid that kindness by leading a rebellion to overthrow his father. Again, those prophecy that Nathan told King David coming true. Well, to add to David's troubles, his best friend and trusted counsel, Ahithophel, he ended up siding with Absalom in this conspiracy. Absalom's his only motive was to lift himself up and make himself great. Make his name great. That was his only thing. He wanted to be king. But Ahithophel, his decision to, to betray was probably seeking revenge against David. Now, this is something I didn't realize before. Um, I read this chapter, frankly. Um, it was probably seeking revenge against David on some level for the murder of Uriah and adultery with Bathsheba because it's quite possible that Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather, if you look through the lines of lineage, you see the um, they have um, the uh, father of of Bathsheba is this, is the same name as Ahithophel's son so there's a connection there perhaps that's perhaps that's true uh, um, that connection exists uh, clearly um, people could have. More people could have that name than just um, his son. But that could have been a motivated factor there. But Absalom ended up not taking Ahithophel's advice, if you remember this story. Ahithophel wanted to pursue and attack David. Ahithophel actually, I mean, Absalom took the advice of someone else, and they didn't pursue David. Ahithophel killed himself because he knew that not attacking David now meant that the rebellion would fail and that he would end up being killed anyways. So he took his own life. You know, here, there's also irony in just Absalom himself. Scripture tells him as, calls him out as a very handsome man. A very handsome man, especially because of his beautiful hair. It, it talks about his hair in there. Um, he, he took pride in that head of hair that he had. Um, it says in Scripture, he only cut it once a year. So there you go. But it was his hair that ended up getting him caught in that tree, didn't it? If you remember that story, riding away, trying to escape, his hair gets caught in the tree and he's hanging there and uh, Joab goes and kills him. So he was killed and the source of his pride became his downfall. Absalom, whose name in Hebrew means father of peace, was just the opposite. He was a son of contention. Well, these two men, Absalom and Ahithophel, they attempted to to kill David. But before they could succeed, we see that their plot was turned back on their own head. And the very means by which they hoped to dispose of. Of David was the very means by which they were disposed. So there's another example of, of God in His providence using irony to judge people. All right, now we're going to talk about Pharaoh. He taught, he, this section in his book, he, he calls him the pre incarnate Hitler. I thought that was. Um, An apt name for this man. The Pharaoh of ancient Egypt, he's a very good example of ironic judgment. We think of all the plagues and what those represented against their gods. Pharaoh being considered a god himself. And Pharaoh's own arrogance, he pursued Israel, but was caught by that very plot by which he devised. You know his first mistake, the Pharaoh's first was mistake. I don't know, you say he's may not obviously it wasn't his first, but well, his big mistake was that he claimed himself to be God. He thought he was God. He gave himself titles as Savior of Egypt, Lord of the Living, Universal God, and sover- the Sovereign God of Heaven and Earth. These are names not for man. And yet he bestowed upon himself those names. Well, Scripture, ironically, identifies the Pharaoh of the Exodus with Satan. And we can see that in Isaiah 51, verse 9, where he's referred to as the dragon. Well, his stubborn claim that he had, that he was deity, in spite of those plagues that came upon them, was the reason for his judgment. He, his mistaken belief in his divine sovereignty had to have led him to issue the, that edict of the firstborn males of Israel to be killed by those midwives. And when that failed, he ordered them to be drowned in the Nile. And not only did his attempts to overcome Israel fail, but those edicts that he pronounced of declaring the killing of these firstborn children were reversed and fell upon himself and that plague that killed the firstborn. And again, not only did God kill the firstborn of every Egyptian family, but he also drowned Pharaoh and his army, Pharaoh's army in that Red Sea. His sins came back upon his own head, and he was punished, ironically, for those very sins that he committed against Israel and against God. This pre-incarnate Hitler. I want to read to you. Um, so it's kind of a long passage, but it talks about some interesting details about Pharaoh and his belief, and the Egyptians' belief of. Um, his power, and that there are consequences to these wrong beliefs. So I took, um, I took a copy of it and put it on this slide so you can read along with me. But I found this very interesting. Quote, before we leave this discussion of, of Pharaoh, right, you know, I want to dig in deeper and understand, again, this role that he gave himself as a Savior to those who died and faced judgment. Because the irony runs even deeper. The Egyptians, they believed that after death, people had to go through a trial. That they had themselves to go through a trial in what's called the Hall of Judgment. To determine whether they were guilty of earthly sin. And if they were found innocent, a person inherited eternal bliss. But if found guilty, he suffered judgment. Well, there were two parts to this judgment process. Number 1, the deceased person arrived at one end of the Hall of Judgment and was presented with a very long list of sins that were very characteristic of a human's life, which he would go on to categorically deny. And then secondly, while this denial of sin was taking place, on the other end of the hall, this 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 person's heart was being weighed in the scales of judgment to see if his testimony supported his denial. The Egyptians believed that all people are sinful, and that the heart would tell the truth if it were separated from the bad influence of the body. So when the heart confessed the deceased person's sins, it would become heavy. Heavy on that scale with that sin and that disequilibrium of the scales would indicate guilt and therefore judgment. Therefore, the heart's confession of sin would demonstrate that the deceased, his denial was a lie with the result of impending judgment. Now, there's more here. I want to go on. Since the Egyptians believed in the universal sinfulness of humanity it seems that no Egyptian would have had a chance for salvation because everyone would be guilty. Their heart would reveal that they're lying. This was a tremendous theological dilemma for them. However, the Egyptians also believed that the heart could be stopped from naturally confessing sin so that salvation could still be possible. Well, this was thought to be accomplished by putting a stone scarab a beetle shaped in the form of a heart, either in the, the mummified clothes that encased the dead person, or it was tied to that person's chest. So this scarab in the shape of a heart was put on their chest. Now this the scarab beetle was a symbol of the sun god, of whom Pharaoh himself was viewed as the incarnation. And they thought it had magical powers, this scarab beetle, to suppress the heart's tendency to confess sin so that salvation could be secured. Thus, it was actually the magical power of the the divine Pharaoh that imposed this silence upon the heart and was responsible for the individual's salvation. So this is why the Pharaoh viewed himself as a savior. He could help their heart remain silent during this judgment. There were various magical spells written on the stone scarab and this heart to bring about the silence of the human heart. The magical power of the sun, God, and Pharaoh was believed to transfer the stillness of the stone heart to the deceased so that the heart's movements to confess sin would be transformed into the stone stillness of silence, a hardened heart. This suppression of the heart's confession apparently came to be seen as a kind of hardening of the heart. So Beal asks a question, he said, "Could this immoral Egyptian concept of salvation through hardening of the heart, could that be the background against which to understand the Lord's own hardening of Pharaoh's heart?" And this ironic judgment that Pharaoh would understand. Is what Beale's arguing, or at least questioning. Moses repeatedly commanded Pharaoh to let the people go, but God repeatedly hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he could not release Israel. But perhaps this was not the only purpose of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, whereas the Pharaoh's magical hardening caused this non confession of sin. And an apparent sinless heart resulting in salvation. The Lord's hardening, however, of Pharaoh's heart led to his heart actually confessing sin. It was a reversal, acknowledging his sinful heavy condition resulting in judgment. So when Pharaoh's hardening of the hearts and others falsely suppressed sin, the Lord was hardening Pharaoh's heart and rightly revealing sin. There's more to it. Um, But we see this irony here that the Pharaoh himself being weighed on the scales and being found deficient. You know, waiting again, that judgment that would come upon him in the Red Sea. His heart became like stone. and You could say it even sunk to the bottom of the sea. So there's a rich irony there. And there's a background there to, um, to the Egyptian beliefs and the hardening of the heart that I, I hadn't realized before. All right, we're about out of time. Other examples um, that we see uh, in nature of man's wisdom against God's providence, you know, consider just in the life of Daniel himself, a prophet of God, a leader in the kingdom of the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians during Judah's captivity. Now, it was, if you recall, as the story goes, it was under King Darius' rule that charges were brought by other lesser leaders, non-Jews, that really envied David's in, uh, Daniel's influence on the king. Well, they had tricked the king into making into law that anyone who made a petition or prayer to any god Or, man besides the king for 30 days should be thrown into the lion's den. And when charges were brought proving Daniel was breaking that law, what the story goes the king regretted it, but he the law was the law, he had to throw him into the lion's den. But we know that he was not harmed in that den of lions. God had sent an angel and shut the The mouths of the lions. Well, in an ironic turn of events, the king ordered that Daniel's accusers and their families be thrown into the lion's den. Beal, he writes, that Daniel's fate recalls David's cry for vengeance upon Saul. He says, "My soul is among the lions," and this is from Psalm fifty-seven. My soul is among the lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen in the midst of it. Well, Daniel 6 tells us the story. The king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. There's an interesting here that Bill, um, the, in this verse, and I just read to you that Bill calls out. There's an Aramaic idiom, um, an expression, in Aramaic. That says to falsely accuse somebody of something is to like eat the pieces of their victim or to devour their victim piece by piece. And perhaps, writes Beale, he says, the irony of this punishment is expressed in Daniel chapter 6, verse 24, when those men who had seek to eat the pieces of Daniel by maliciously accusing him themselves were. Well, they were eaten in pieces. And as a final irony in this story, this chapter ends with the king who formally commanded worship be made to him and him alone. He made the declaration that says, then King Darius wrote to all the people's nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. He said, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to, be, to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who saved has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And we, that, which was very similar to what Nebuchadnezzar declared after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were saved from the flames so we see god once again turning these ironies giving glory for himself and the wicked their plots falling upon them their own heads well i'm gonna there, there's much more in this chapter to go on and it gets to a lot more application in fact and that's what we're going to pick on up on next week because we're out of time right now but um As we're going to continue to walk through this book, we're going to be reflecting on way again, God interacts with mankind through many ways of irony and how we see his redemptive plan continue throughout of it using those ironies.